Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Storytellers Podcast. In this episode, I was lucky enough to talk to an Australian Nobel laureate by the name of Peter Doherty, who won his prize in the field of medicine. Peter and I had a fascinating and very useful discussion, I think, centering on the theme of COVID-19. Before briefly touching on the nature of his award, which has relevance to the discussion at hand, we went over what COVID had been up to, up to this point, and where we currently stand, and also what the future potentially holds. We talked about vaccine hesitancy amongst the population, and we also talked about the current state of vaccine efficacy, which I know is a question that looms large in the eyes of many. We also talked about long COVID and the current state of long COVID, just how real it is, how much of a COVID-induced phenomenon it is. And we also talked about Peter's perceptions of our responses to COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic. And to cap things off, we talked about briefly the Doherty Institute, named after Peter, which performs vital medical research and examination. This was a great conversation and one that I think many will find quite useful and informative. I know that a lot of us have fallen into a bit of a lull when it comes to our perceptions of COVID and its relative importance in this moment, but it is still yet present and may still rear its head again in the future, though we may think it to be a past problem. Anyway, without further ado, I give you Peter Doherty. So today I have the honor of speaking to Peter Doherty, an Australian medical icon who has quite the set of accolades to his name, and it seems rightfully so. Professor Doherty is a Nobel laureate in the field of medicine, has won the Paul Ehrlich Prize, the Gardner International Award, and the Lasker Award. He has been awarded more than 20 honorary doctorates and published over 500 research papers. He was Australian of the Year and is a companion of the Order of Australia. So, Peter, thanks for talking to me today. Yeah, it's a pleasure, Lucian. Cheers. So, just briefly, would you perhaps well, be able to tell us what you won your Nobel Prize for, just as a bit of an introduction, and what your sort of background has been up to? Yeah, uh, the Nobel basis of the Nobel Prize was a discovery that we made almost 50 years ago, 50 years ago next year. And what we discovered is that the transplantation system signals to the immune system that something is wrong with the cell and arranges basically for the cell to be destroyed. Now, I'll expand on that a little bit. As you all know, if we graft a kidney from one person to another, unless we're identical twins, it will be rejected. And that's because we have a very different spectrum of proteins on the surface of our cells. Each individual is different. And, uh, hmm. and if we, they are recognized by the immune system, if an organ is transplanted by, from one individual to another, and a response called the T cell response or killer T cell response 
turns on to re reject that transplanted organ. So there's no obvious reason for us to have that system, except perhaps to reject, say, a tumor that might be passed by a handshake or something of that sort, sort which is rather unlikely, though we do have a situation in the, in the Tasmanian devil where a cancer is transmitted by biting. So why do we have this transplant system? Well, it turns out it's not really there to reject organs from other people, which doesn't happen in nature. You need a transplant surgeon to do that. It's basically there because when it's changed in our own cells, it tells our immune system that cell is damaged or dangerous and must be destroyed. And we discovered this through virus infection, where in a virus infection, very small bits of the virus are carried to the cell surface by the transplant molecules. And it's that change to those molecules that's, um, that's seen as foreign and leads mm -hmm. to the cell being killed. And with a virus infection, viruses can only grow within our living cells. So you have to get rid of those factory cells. And that's what this does. And the same principle applies to rejecting cancers. And it's being used in cancer therapy and various other things. So it was a very big discovery made from some very simple experiments. And we wrote a theory around it, which I've just about principally basically outlined to you uh, with mm -hmm. a lot of other features to it that are of interest to immunologists. And, um, and that's what got us a Nobel Prize 22 years after we published our, uh, our findings. And that Nobel Prize is now 26 years ago this, this year. So one thing that is certain is it makes me very old. <laughs> I, um, I'm actually what I describe as part of the living fossil record of my subject, which is immunology. Well, it sounds like um, very foundational research. It's interesting that you were awarded the prize so late after the initial work. That's, that's not a long time for a Nobel Prize. Um, right. The actual Nobel, the rules that Nobel set out, and Alfred Nobel was a manufacturer, a chemist. Uh, he made um, dynamite, I think, or nitroglycerin. Um, he thought that that explosive was so terrible when he discovered it in 1896 that it would end all wars. Um, mm. He wasn't quite right. Yeah. Uh, but he, uh, when he died, he died without children. And he um, left his estate uh, to set up the Nobel Prizes and the Nobel Foundation took it over. And the first prize was awarded in 1901. These are all basic prizes that are directed at what he considered the higher activities of human beings. And he considered science very high on that list. So there's a Nobel Prize for physics, there's one for chemistry, medicine, and one for literature. Uh, later, the Swedish banks mm -hmm. added the Swedish Banks Prize for Economics in the name of Alfred Nobel and bought their way into the Nobel system uh, to offer an economics prize, which was very welcome because they paid a lot of money, which gets put back into the amount the prize winners are given. And, um, and there's also the, under Nobel's well, he established the Nobel Peace Prize. Sweden and Norway were at the, are at that time together. And uh, he gave the Norwegian legislature the job of awarding the Peace Prize, which is often highly political. The science prizes are mm -hmm. all awarded by various specialist committees mm -hmm or recommended by various specialist committees that meet in Stockholm, as is the Literature Prize, which can be political also in one way or another. 
and uh, they tend to be pretty apolitical. Mm -hmm. Sounds like classic economists, hey, buying their way into <laughs> a prize for themselves. Well, you know, <laughs> economics is a very important field, but uh, yeah. whether you call it a science or not, it is called the dismal science by some. But anything, anything that deals with human behavior is very difficult, as we know. Yeah, yeah. I had a conversation with Steve Keen. Um, I'm not sure who you may or may not be aware of, um, Australian economist, some time ago, and he was quite disparaging of the field and definitely would not think of it as a science. Um, but well, it's it's we need them, I guess. Yeah, we need them uh, to some to some extent. And we need we need them to be sometimes a lot smarter and to show a lot more integrity than some of them actually do. True. Some of them are great. I mean, I'm not disparaging economists or maths. Mm. Ross Garno, for instance, a wonderful Australian economist. Yeah. Okay. We'll leave economists alone for the moment I think and so. um, get on to topic, which is COVID-19, COVID which I know you've had some things to um, say about in the past um, on various other podcasts and platforms and whatnot. So I was wondering if you might just for us be able to summarize what COVID has done up to this point, how it has sort of manifested up to this point and what it is doing in this moment? Yeah, basically, um, we knew that there was a real threat out there. Um, we've known for some time now that our bat populations are carrying a lot of different viruses. We didn't know this before the year 2000. If you'd asked me, I've, I've been involved in this field, infection and immunity to do with viruses now for next year will be 60 years. Mm -hmm. If you'd asked me if bats carry any viruses that are a threat to humans, I would have said uh, they carry a rabies-like viruses, rhabdoviruses, and transmit them by biting. And you don't want to be bitten by a If you try and catch a fruit bat, for instance, you may get bitten and you could get a rhabdovirus infection, a rabies-like virus infection, even in Australia, though we have no rabies virus. And in fact, Australian licensed bat handlers are all vaccinated against rabies. So mm. uh, we knew that. But apart from that, we knew of no viruses transmitted by bats. And then along came the SARS virus of 2002, 2003. And then we had Hendra and Nipah virus in horses and pigs in Southeast Asia. I worked on a lot at the Australian Animal Health Lab in Geelong. And people started to study uh, what's in bats using new technology, particularly deep sequencing type technologies that are exemplified in the work of Eddie Holmes uh, mm -hmm. at Sydney University, a wonderful scientist. And, and the, the work on the paramyxos, the Hendra and Nipah, the, the, we call them Hennepa viruses, they're a subclass of what we call paramyxoviruses, which cause croup and so forth in kids. Um, they were worked on very extensively early on by Lin Fa Wang, uh, an Australian Chinese scientist at the uh, Australian Animal Health Laboratory, now the Australian Centre for in Disease Preparedness or something at, at Geelong, a big high security lab. Um, so, so we now know that bats carry an enormous spectrum of potential pathogens that can affect us. A whole lot of coronaviruses, uh, paramyxoviruses, phyloviruses. These are the viruses that Ebola uh, belongs to, Marburg virus. 
and that they transmit to us, often by an intermediate species. Mm -hmm. So the first of these that really bothered us was SARS in 2002, 2003. The first SARS, 8,000 people in all became infected. It was a more lethal virus than COVID-2. It killed about 10% of the people and infected. Mm. But again, showed the same profile of being more lethal for the older people. And uh, but it burnt out. So mm. then uh, two more common cold ones were detected for the first time in 2005. One in Amsterdam, one in Hong Kong, both uh, cities that have big international airports. Then along came uh, MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syncytial Virus, which goes from bats to camels to people. And that infected and killed people in the Middle East, got across into Thailand for a bit, uh, but hasn't spread very much. Kills about 30% of the people and infects, and um, then, uh, uh, but doesn't infect lots of people. And then in 2019, along came Cove 2. And it's the worst of the lot because mm. it has an ideal characteristic for a pandemic pathogen in that many of the people who become infected don't become very ill, mainly mm. young people, at least not initially. And uh, the people who die, uh, older people and people with defective immune systems due to one reason or another, or other diseases like diabetes, it's highly lethal. For diabetics, for instance, so um, so it's become an extraordinarily dangerous and um, unpredictable pathogen, mm -hmm. and not all of us underrated it at the beginning. Quite frankly, when it hit mm -hmm. in two thousand, the beginning of early two thousand twenty, so people were we were saying at that time this is not influenza, but basically we were thinking of it like influenza, like a respiratory virus. Uh, that spreads very rapidly, and um, it uh, and that we thought that it would be like influenza. That you know the two thousand uh, the the nineteen eighteen nineteen influenza pandemic was much more lethal than this. It killed fifty million people mm. in a global population that is about a quarter the size of today. Okay. Mm. Mm. Highly lethal, killed enormous numbers of people, mm. and uh, but it was over in a, just over a year. Really, started really being serious in late the latter part of 1918. Mm. Uh, it didn't get to Australia till 1919. It had already weakened a bit by then, and by 1920, people weren't worried about it. We're still worried about COVID two three years later, almost three years later. So. This is a very different pathogen. And there are many other features to it, which I can elaborate on. Why? Why? Okay. So, why is COVID something that we're still worrying about at this point? It appears to me, just from from the ground, from a uh, let's a casual, common perspective, that COVID has disappeared, sort of into the background, at least in terms of in people's. Well, it's not it's front still, of focus in many people's it's minds. Still infecting. Um, still infecting about 60,000 and reported cases. And I'd say reported cases now in the United States are probably about 50% of cases, about 50% probably not reported. It's still infecting 60,000 reported, still 60,000 reported cases in the USA. Uh, numbers have fallen down here, but this is BA5 Omicron. Um, I think Victoria still probably about, um, what is it about 10,000 cases a week or something? I'm, I'm not sure. 
I mean, it is falling. The, the BA5 numbers are falling. Um, so we've got people who've been vaccinated three or four times. Uh, we've got people who've been super infected after vaccination because the vaccine, the vaccine is now too distant from the virus. The vaccine is against the original 2019 Wuhan strain mm -hmm. and the virus has undergone multiple mutations. So mm -hmm. what we underrated with this virus is its capacity to mutate and still infect mm -hmm. without suffering what we call fitness cost, which mm -hmm. diminishes transmission. And so we, did, we had no idea that it would be so, so serious in that respect. So what we're waiting for now is uh, Omicron looks a bit less severe, but you're not really quite sure that's true because people have had multiple vaccines, which are tending to protect against late stage disease still. And that's working through the T cells, the stuff we got the Nobel Prize for, mm -hmm. not through the antibody response, which is the normal protective response stimulated by vaccines. Um, and uh, so Omicron is killing less people uh, and it put less people in hospital, but people are heavily vaccinated. So they may, that may be part of the reason. We also have antiviral drugs that work uh, that have been given to the elderly, particularly Paxlovid. Mm -hmm. So that will be saving a lot of people. And the level of reporting has fallen right off. Mm -hmm. The governments were paying an enormous amount across the planet to do PCR tests and have very widespread mm -hmm. uh, surveillance for this virus. Mm -hmm. That funding is all gone. Uh, mm -hmm. And so you're not getting, we're not sure we're getting a real perception of how much virus infection is out there. Mm -hmm. uh, what is um, uh, really the benchmark is how many people are coming into hospital sick mm -hmm. with this virus. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, it, it, it does look better than it has been. Uh, there's a variant spreading in India called BA 2.7.5. It's been detected here. It hasn't taken off. And uh, it's thought again that it may be less virulent, but quite frankly, uh, we don't really know. So uh, not on, so so not only is is the virus uh, becoming less prevalent, but it's becoming less severe in terms of not how... that clear. It's all that less prevalent. It okay. is BA five is dropping off. What what we're worried about, of course, is another different mutation that'll come roaring back in. Okay, right. And if so, you look at the family tree for COVID-2, the, the, the variants we heard about, Alpha, Beta, Delta, okay, were all separate mutants that came off at different points, okay? So they're, they're what we call subclades, and they, they were independent mutations. They weren't related to each other mm -hmm. any more than they were related to the original virus. Right. But Omicron has established a lineage so what we've been dealing with since late last year is the omicron lineage and now we're up to ba5 and we're just coming to the end of ba5 it's quietening down now what whether there will be another virus that comes on later or not we don't know there's okay. no particularly obvious sign of a newer variant or even an independent variant which is spreading a lot anywhere, mm -hmm. but we don't know that won't happen. Right. We hope it doesn't. We hope we're coming to the end of it, but we don't know. Okay. Well, this was going to be one of my later questions, but I suppose I'll ask it now as it's on topic. So basically you're saying you're not sure, we're not sure what the future is going no. to look like, um, basically. We've become, become pretty um, careful about predicting. 
<laughs> because mm-hmm. we've been wrong and and uh and we we underestimated the capacity of this virus to change as rapidly as it and effectively as it does mm-hmm. it um normally when a virus changes it has to change for the virus to change and escape from the antibody response it has to change what we call the receptor binding domain of the spike protein which is one of the proteins on the surface of the virus mm-hmm. and um it's been able to change that receptor binding domain in ways that we thought would make it less fit, that mm-hmm. it wouldn't affect as much, that it wouldn't spread as much, but it hasn't necessarily made it less fit. Right. And so that's basically a bit the conundrum we, we're in. So we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, basically that's what we're doing, uh, is waiting to see where it takes us. Do you think it's... And, mm-hmm. Do you think, sorry, and, you know, it's, it's kind of instructive that with the enormous sophistication of modern science, and it is enormously sophisticated, uh, in 1918, 1919, we didn't actually isolate the influenza virus. Mm. We didn't isolate any influenza virus until 1931, I think it was, 12 years later. Okay. In, uh, um, in, um, uh, with COVID, COVID-19, the virus was first detected in China about December 2019. And by January 2020, mid-January 2020, the sequence of the virus was published. If someone in 1918 wouldn't have even known what you're talking about if they mm-hmm. talked about a virus sequence because they had no concept of a gene sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sequence of the virus was published in mid 20. 20, mid-January 2020, we had a diagnostic PCR test based on that sequence within five days and diagnosed the first case that came to Australia in Melbourne in, I think, January 24, uh, 2020 with the PCR test. And uh, the vaccine manufacturers were starting to make experimental vaccines from mid-January 2020. And could you, would you be able to speak perhaps to why so many people in and outside the academic community, it seemed, were both were skeptical and suspicious and cynical of the rapid pace at which, um, yeah, sort I, of I don't know if there was that much skepticism. I'm not sure which academic community, and the academic community is a big family. It covers everyone from historians to mm-hmm. even economists. And, uh, and certainly medical scientists. But I think within the informed medical community, there wasn't great skepticism about, about the vaccines. But basically, the problem with vaccines is, and we've seen it, and I don't know if you saw the movie Contagion. Uh, uh, it's been on my list for some time, I think. Yeah, you, you should watch it because, you know, it's about, it's based on the original SARS pandemic. Mm. And um, they... Um, now, Gwyneth Paltrow basically gets the virus from a chef who gets it from a pig who gets it from a bat. And then Gwyneth Paltrow comes back to the United States and anyone who comes within about 10 feet of Gwyneth Paltrow catches the bloody thing and mm. probably dies. And, mm-hmm. and Gwyneth herself eventually dies, not the real Gwyneth, a fake one. Thank they you. take the top of her head off. I think it's a dummy, not a, not a stand-in. And uh, so that we see the post-mortem. But then, you know, they isolate the virus and then within about a week, they have a vaccine. So mm. that's where the movie kind of falls apart because we've seen what happened 
with the vaccine here. The problem with vaccines is you have to be sure they're safe. Mm-hmm. And so an enormous amount of testing was done. It has to go through what's called a phase, uh, has to go through what we call preclinical studies. That is, you have to inject it into animals, see if it works and makes an immune response and protects animals against virus challenge. Then you have to do a phase one clinical trial, which is a small trial in humans, uh, where you just have to be sure it's safe. Then you do a phase two, phase three, where eventually you put it into hundreds, maybe a hundred thousand humans and -hmm. see whether it's safe and whether it works. That takes months. Mm -hmm. And then the only real trial, of course, is when you start to put it into millions of humans. And that's Mm -hmm. what's called the phase four trial, which is basically rolling the vaccine out. Now, what happened with the vaccines was um, China made a very conventional vaccine, uh, which is a formal and inactivated vaccine or a beta propiolactone inactivated vaccine, much like the flu vaccines we used. Mm-hmm. That hasn't proved to be a particularly good vaccine. It was made against whole virus that was killed. Mm-hmm. You grew up the virus and killed it. That's the way we make flu vaccines mm-hmm. with a bit, of, bit more sophistication than that, but not a whole lot more. Um, then, um, but the, uh, the British made what we called adenovirus vectored vaccine. They used a virus called uh, a virus that infects chimpanzees, actually, uh, causes respiratory infection in chimps. They engineered that virus to put in the DNA. It's an RNA virus, but you make a reverse copy and make DNA, the DNA for the COVID-2 spike protein. So that the, the, it's actually delivered to, as a vaccine, what you're giving people is what we call a defective adenovirus that can't go through a further cycle of replication, but can get into cells and express the genes, both of the adenovirus and of the spike protein that's been loaded into it. Now, that vaccine was working reasonably well. It was uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine or Vaxveria, but then it was found that a small proportion of women, particularly, were being killed by this thing. Mm. And so, you know, that's part of the story of vaccination. It's a risk-benefit equation, mm-hmm. and some women died, a very small number, but you can see it on the Therapeutic Goods Administration website. Mm-hmm. Look at our TGA website, and it will report to you exactly what happened there. And, of course, that vaccine was withdrawn, though it's used widely in many, many countries because the risk-benefit in a country where the virus is circulating at a high level is much in favour of being vaccinated. Mm-hmm. We weren't having much virus circulation at that stage because of the lockdown. Then with the mRNA vaccines, this is a different strategy, but again, you're, you're actually delivering the molecular template for, um, for uh, making the viral spike protein. So mm-hmm. the, the adenovirus vaccine strategy had been around a long time. It certainly, we could have made a COVID-1 vaccine from it early in uh, the 2000s, and it had been used uh, to, as an Ebola vaccine made in that way had been used to limit Ebola outbreaks in Africa and was quite successful. But it wasn't injected into millions of people the way the, uh, the COVID-2 one was. Oh. The, uh, the mRNA vaccine was completely new to humans. So that got a lot of people upset. They were worried about it. They thought because it says RNA, mRNA is actually a template for making protein. You mm-hmm. don't copy mRNA back to make RNA and then DNA, but people were worried it could somehow get into our genome, and some of them still are. So that was totally revolutionary. It has a problem too. It, um, it can cause um, uh, myocarditis and uh, pericarditis, particularly in adolescent males. 
Sometimes they have to be hospitalised. Uh, sometimes there are long-term consequences, but in the main, the cardiologists say it's easily handled and they're okay. Mm -hmm. But And, of course, the thing about COVID-2 is it's much worse at causing all these problems. The, yes. the blood clotting problem was apparent with the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine and the pericarditis, myocarditis we saw with the mRNA vaccine. The virus itself does both things at a mm -hmm. much higher level and much worse. Mm -hmm. There's... A few people I was following throughout this time, one of whom is Nicholas Christakis, who's both a physician and a sociologist and not, I don't believe a virologist, but has done some work in that um, field. And he made the point that vaccines, because there was, I suppose, a lot of um, perhaps misapprehension on around these vaccines and what exactly they do and how, they're, how you should sort of conceive of them. And his example that he put forward was as the vaccines effectively being a, a seatbelt in a moving car that was about to crash, um, with that car being COVID in a sense. Um, and I've, I've used, used that, that same analogy, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, basically any medical intervention is a matter of relative risk. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, people like me, are trained to look at the world through a prism of probability and relative risk. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, the prob I live near a busy street across from Melbourne University, which has trams and four lanes of traffic and stuff. And the probability that I get into trouble if I cross against the light is much higher than if I stay on the footpath and, mm -hmm. uh, and wait for the light to change, even though the probability then is not zero because some man maniacs come through mm -hmm. red lights. But so, it, you know, we do a relative risk assessment. We do that all the time mm -hmm. in situations like that, crossing the street. And wearing a seatbelt is a relative risk assessment. Sometimes mm -hmm. if you've got a seatbelt on, it can make the accident worse. It can happen. But in most accidents, you're much better off if you've got the seatbelt on. And most people understand that, I think. Mm -hmm. So we think of probability and relative risk in those sort of terms, but we don't think of them in terms of things like vaccines. But no matter what you do, just sticking a needle in, in someone has some risk. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, risk to the arm. I mean, no, I, I had a, um, and, and, and you can't, yeah, anyway, there's all sorts of weirdness about this. I mean, yeah. a, a friend of uh, mine who's a virologist, really, pediatrician and virologist, his wife is a pediatrician. And he describes how she's got a baby in, the, in her office and she's about to give the, the baby the, standard vaccine dose mm -hmm. and the baby goes into convulsions mm -hmm. babies do that they regularly fit you know mm -hmm. they're usually okay but you know it's not uncommon in small children um, but of course if she'd been injecting the vaccine mm -hmm. that would have been responsible for it but she she wasn't i mean she wasn't anywhere near the baby so mm -hmm. yeah so it there's a lot of issues about um the fact that vaccines are tied to something. I mean, people will link some sort of adverse event to a vaccine if it happens a month or, or two months later. Mm -hmm. So you get what are called adverse events reports, which are very large numbers of these, because if you vaccinate, say, a million people and you go across the age range, in the next month, some of those people are going to die. Some of them are going to develop another, in, another problem. And some of them are going to get worse with a the problem they've already got. So the, there's a tendency to think 
and if they've been vaccinated and this happens within that next month the vaccine caused it mm-hmm. okay so a lot of the people who are against vaccination just look at the adverse events reports there's large numbers of adverse events reports you don't need to justify anything you can do this as an individual you can your doctor can do it or or whatever you can put in a report to an authority like the therapeutic goods administration so what then the professionals at the therapeutic goods administration have to do is to screen through those adverse events avoids and say oh this one looks like investigating because we think this is a known problem with this vaccine and so we'll investigate this and then when you do that you find actually though a lot of people looking at adverse events reports will tell you that the mrna vaccines have killed a lot of people actual fact i don't think they've killed any australian is that right i don't think so uh you can look at the tga report for yourself look Mm -hmm. at tga adverse events reports it updates every couple of weeks i think Mm -hmm. Uh, and you can uh you i mean if you're sending out information send out the link well i suppose what you were speaking to there was our our propensity towards a negative uh, bias of disproportionately weighting those those adverse events and whilst ignoring those events that were not adverse. Well, you know, it's all very natural, I think, and, and people don't normally think in this kind of context. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the way scientists think. Well, hopefully um, think. And, uh, you know, it is, it is basically biomedical science particularly, and, and doctors, you, know, you think in terms of relative risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's the equation that, that a doctor will always go through uh, before they use the therapy. Mm-hmm. And for the Paxlovid is a good case in point, the, the drug, the antiviral protease inhibitor, it's got a, um, the Paxlovid is an anti-coronavirus drug. So it knocks the coronavirus, it doesn't kill it, but it stops it multiplying. Mm-hmm. So basically cells, you've still got some infected cells potentially, but the virus is not multiplying through the time you're taking this drug, which is five days. After you stop taking it, you can get a relapse, uh, which I did, I mean, when I had it. And it's very common with older people, but the virus then soon cleared. Mm-hmm. But um, so, but along with the 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 anti-coronavirus drug, which is specific for the coronavirus, uh, there's another drug called ritonavir. Now, um, ritonavir is a drug that's used in the AIDS cocktail, and what it does is it stops the um, the the enzyme that will break down protease inhibitors. Paxlovid is what we call a protease inhibitor. It blocks one of the virus molecules that's necessary for the virus to multiply. So ritonavir stops it being broken down. And that gives you higher drug levels for longer. But it will also do the same for other drugs that are normally subject to this type of control. Some of the statins, for instance, that are used for blood uh, cholesterol medication. Some of the blood pressure meds. If you give people who are taking those ritonavir you will Mm -hmm. prolong blood levels and you will get an over-the-top effect so a a doctor has to make a relative risk decision Mm -hmm. when approving paxlovid for a patient if they're taking these drugs they have to say either oh you must stop taking drugs a and b Mm -hmm. or they may think well you're at such risk of the problems they're holding at bay we're not going to give you paxlovid Mm -hmm. okay so that's, that equation is constantly in the head of, of a physician mm-hmm. who's administering drugs, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So, okay, so just to perhaps backpedal a little bit, 
would you be able to speak to you've you've touched on it briefly but speak to the efficacy of our vaccines going forward and the let's say well the relative benefit of still of getting vaccinated yeah. at this well, point look we honestly we're, we're still trying to work this out uh, firstly you know the vaccine efficacy has fallen right off the vaccine worked against the original Wuhan strain, tended to limit transmission. By the time we got to BA5 Omicron, it's the antibodies are no longer working very well at all because they're too distant and you're not stopping transmission. It's pretty hard actually to stop transmission anyway. Mm -hmm. The antibody molecules, which are Y-shaped molecules that float around in blood, grab hold of the virus and block it from binding onto our cells. Those mm -hmm. antibody molecules, it's easy to keep them at high levels in blood. The cells that are making them, they're called plasma cells, are sitting in our bone marrow and pumping this stuff out into blood. But when it comes to keeping them at a high level up here in the nose, which is mm -hmm. what you've got to do to stop infection, it's really low. And, and basically, you know, it's a dating game. You've got the virus coming in. It's got a receptor for some of the cells in our nose. You've got antibody molecules that can block that. But, you know, the dating game is in favour of the virus in interacting with the cell first because there's mm -hmm. not a lot of antibody there. If we could flood the nose with antibody, great, but we can't. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you can't just blow it up the nose. It'll just come out in mucus. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, there are some strategies like intranasal vaccines, which are being tried now in combination with traditional vaccines to try and get more antibody production up here. That might help. Mm -hmm. But at the moment, the vaccines are too off their target. Then, mm -hmm. the, so the vaccines are actually working through T-cell response, which um, that, that hasn't changed so much with the vaccine. So the first question is, it's shown us, COVID has really shown us the limits of vaccines. It's also shown us that vaccines that stimulate T-cells could be useful and we could go further with that. So that could be a new strategy for vaccines. There's been a lot of work, uh, a lot of thinking about how we make much more cross-reactive vaccines. But that thinking has been going on now for decades with AIDS virus and with the flu viruses. And nothing has really come through that actually is great. Maybe this will drive that further forward and we'll do better in making highly cross-reactive vaccines. I think we will think in those terms. And maybe we could try and work out how we get vaccines out there a bit quicker because mm -hmm. we'd really be pretty slow at getting them out. And so, and the other thing is that with COVID, we've done things we've never done before. You know, with adult human beings, if we do vaccinate them yearly, we just give them one shot, so the flu vaccine. We've never gone ahead and given adult humans three or four doses of vaccine in quick succession. That's mm. never been done. And, uh, you know, we're just starting to try and understand as a lot of experiments have been done or in progress, the analysis is being done. They're really pretty complicated experiments to actually evaluate what's happened here. But mm. we've been doing whole experiments in the human population we've never done before. So how concerned do you think or should your average citizen be about COVID at this point? How much should it be on their mind as it was? Well, honestly, I think if you're older, um, you stood, still should be really concerned and, uh, and protect yourself. But, you know, I got it um, and people are getting it. It's very infectious. Um, uh, I think, um, I'd, you know, try and avoid getting it more than once because there's indications that getting it more than once can make it worse. Uh, and with younger people, there's always the risk of long COVID too, which again is another 
complex mm. we're trying to understand. Could you speak to uh, that, perhaps? What, could you speak to that, perhaps, what we know about well, the long it's basically, COVID at this you know, point? Well, there are various forms of it. You get a long sequel after a virus infection, and you seem to have recovered, but then you just your health is not as good as it should be, or you're getting, uh, and with long COVID, you get brain fogs, you get muscle pains, uh, gastrointestinal pains, uh, reduced exercise tolerance, very common. People who've been athletes uh, now actually find it hard to walk, walk 100 yards. And we're sure that those symptoms can be attributed to COVID. Oh, yeah, to absolutely. COVID. They, they're, they're all, the, the studies of long COVID are all linked to an initial PCR diagnosis. The, right. the systematic studies that are going on. Not all the reporting of long COVID, because a lot of the reporting of long COVID is self-reporting. But right. the studies of long COVID that are being made very systematically, where people have been diagnosed and then they're being followed uh, for months and maybe years, uh, all of them start with a positive diagnosis. Often they they were fit young adults. Uh, this is the one. These are the ones that are particularly concerned. So the, the the problem with long COVID is it's a very amorphous distribution. Mm-hmm. Uh, one 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 component that many still consider to be long COVID is what we call PICS, post intensive care unit syndrome. This right. is people who got very sick, had to go to hospital, were on on a ventilator. Now mm-hmm. anyone who's in that situation can suffer a lot of tissue and organ damage, which may not repair. Mm-hmm. And we know, for instance, that though people apparently recover after that event with influenza, they may well die much earlier, for instance. So, so you've got to take that PICS component out. The people who got very, very sick with COVID went to yeah. hospital, were on a ventilator, and, and they just survived. That, but then there's this other cohort of long COVID. This is a worrying one. These are people who often have a very mild um, even an, an almost subclinical infection, they, they're fine. And then about a month later, three or four weeks later, they start to feel dull, drowsy, and uh, they can be compromised for months. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, it seems to be getting worse. Now, we, we've already always had this syndrome around with um, uh, what we call myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome, which um, you know has been a very, very difficult um, disease for physicians to handle because often you they do all the usual blood workups and everything and nothing looks wrong but you can see the patient's sick mm-hmm. and then they're unwell and you know there's been a tendency it's more common in women there's sometimes been a tendency to say it's psychosomatic whatever that means mm-hmm. but basically it's a real disease so i think long COVID is very similar to this and and uh, but it's following COVID 19 and basically this is the problem in young people and this could be you know we don't really know the incidence because a lot of it's self-reporting mm-hmm. but you know at the acute stages of it it could be up around 20 percent of people and in the long term it may be two to three percent of people or more we don't know we mm-hmm. will know but it will take time taste seems to be a common affected um yeah taste sense. not so much with the um with Omicron as, as earlier on, um, right. you know, the viruses vary a bit in the type of infection they cause. Um, but the other thing we didn't know uh, when um, when I, was, I said we, we said it's not influenza, but we thought about it like influenza, is influenza is not what we call a systemic disease. Uh, that is influenza virus gets into the respiratory tract and that's where it multiplies. It doesn't go around the body in our blood. Mm. It stays out of the blood actually. So. 
it, it can cause damage by what we call cytokine storms, where you produce a lot of toxic molecules in an attempt to get rid of it. But, and they, those molecules get into the blood and they make you feel sick and, you know, they, mm -hmm. they interact with receptors in your brain, they make you feel sleepy. This is a normal process of an mm -hmm. infection. In fact, you get a bit of it with a vaccine. Mm -hmm. now, the vaccine it mimics an immune response. So the vaccine gives you a sore arm for a couple of days. You may feel drowsy. You, you may, may feel like crap for a couple mm -hmm. of days after a vaccine. Perfectly normal. Uh, nothing to worry about. Uh, if it goes on for a week, then you start to worry about it. So basically, um, uh, but the other thing with COVID is that it's not, it is a systemic infection. The virus gets in the blood, goes round the body in the blood, and it can infect cells in the heart, the kidneys, the, the uh, various other organs, probably the muscles. If, if people come to post-mortem, mm -hmm. you know, they don't survive COVID, they die in hospital, the virus is everywhere in their body, everywhere. And uh, it's, it's really uh, a much more, uh, much worse disease than influenza in that sense. Right. Okay. Well, so I'm a little conscious of time. Um, and I just thought maybe to cap us off, if you might just speak to what you made, just quickly, what you made of our response to this virus, sort of at the level of the nation internationally as a, as a scientific community. And how do you think... How prepared do you think we are for future? Events? We were dealing with a completely unknown pathogen, totally new, um, and we didn't really know the extent of it. And so we had a very, very rigorous public health lockdown policy. After the Ruby Princess event, uh, we really locked down. Before that, we'd locked down to international air travel, I think. But we really locked down very hard. Now, people think that's in a very authoritarian response, and that's absolutely true. But those powers, have long been legislated in parliamentary governments to deal with pandemics and um, and disease outbreaks. They're, they're in the legislative process. Right. So they're not a new instance, thing. In, in the United States, pardon? They're not a new if, thing. The, they weren't just draconianly brought upon by COVID. No, if you go back to Venice in the uh, 16th century with the plague or 17th century, they had these powers. In, in, in the United States, for instance, if you're a street person who develops tuberculosis, and you're not taking your, your drugs, they'll lock you up. Right. They may put you out on day release, but they will lock you up until you've finished your drug course. Uh, and there's the ca famous case of typhoid Mary back in the early part of the 20th century, who was carrying the typhoid bacterium. And she was locked up for ages, poor woman, mm -hmm. uh, because she, uh, she always wanted to work as a cook. And as soon as she started to work as a cook, she'd, she'd have a typhoid outbreak mm -hmm. because uh, she was still carrying this stuff in her gut. And um, so there are big, there are major powers there, just sort of there are major authoritarian powers in wartime. So those powers were used here, and basically they kept the virus out in the initial phase. So they kept it out before we had vaccines. They kept it out before we had um, we had any drugs. So they, you know, I think we've had about three thousand people die now. But my calculation is, if we just do it on a, on a proportional population basis. Uh, somewhere between 40,000 and 70,000 Australians would die. If, it would have died if you compared it with the British results and the American results. Right. Um, people don't quote that higher figure, but if you just translate it on purely on a numbers of people, uh, basically uh, that's what you were looking at. So, so I think, I don't know how many people we've had die now, but it's, I think, 10, is it less than 10,000? I'm not sure. 
So I think a number of lives were saved, but then there's the question, saving lives of older people versus the, the living of young people. And that's a, that's a difficult scenario. Um, so, and also we kept out the Wuhan virus. It seems that the Wuhan virus, if you had it, <coughs> is actually suppressing the subsequent immune response to vaccination and or to a super infection. So it may be a good thing we kept that virus out. But that's um, just one report so far. So anyway, we did what we did. And I, I think personally what we should do, and we need academics to do this, that is we need people who will actually look at the data without any political judgment and look at the data from across the planet. And we look at all the experiments that different countries did because different countries handled this in various ways. Sweden was always being cited as one type of approach, Portugal another, much more like ours, um, and so forth. So we look at all those results from across the planet and we say, what worked best? Mm -hmm. And we, we ask that question from the point of view of uh, disease incidence and death, from the point of view of economic viability of the population, from the point of view of sociological well-being, and from the point of view of psychological disease, whatever you want to look at. Mm -hmm. So we need academic economists, sociologists, uh, mm -hmm. biomedical scientists, various people, statisticians, obviously, looking at all this data. Now, whether we'll do that or not, I don't know, but I'd love to think we would. And we maybe then would have better clues on how to optimally handle something like this if it comes along again. And I'm absolutely certain it will come along again. Oh, you are? That's, um, yeah, yeah. That's we, we, look, there were two coronaviruses in the human population before 2000, mm -hmm. five came across two th since 2000. What right. changed? What changed? Prosperity in Asia, mm -hmm. where they have live animal and live bird markets, and the amount of international air travel out of Asia. So I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not pointing the finger at Asia, I'm just saying. Globalization in a sense. Globalization gets these viruses around the planet very, very quickly. Um, here's, a, here's a coffee cup, teacup, flu flies. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So does COVID. Right. <laughs> Gets the point across. <laughs> I think, um, I think something that a lot of people struggled with in the public sphere was, was the different responses that were sort of, um, taken in all, in different countries and different states. And it made, made a lot of it seem ultimately arbitrary um yeah it was arbitrary it depended on the national legislature the mm -hmm. uh, and the national public health community and so mm -hmm. you know britain took a very different line from the one we did mm -hmm. um and uh i think we should look at them and say they're not that dissimilar i mean they have a we both have a pretty reasonable public health service mm -hmm. um, not perfect but no public health service is perfect i mean mm -hmm. you know public health is health is care is just becoming so expensive. So you could look at Britain and, the, and Australia and compare those populations. Um, you know, Britain is a very crowded island, but most of us are crowded into big cities. Though, of course, we do tend to live, a lot of more of us tend to live in detached housing, I expect. Uh, you could look and compare us with the United States. I mean, the United States has a really um, crap healthcare system for the poor. Mm -hmm. Uh, but they got the vaccines much earlier than we did, and they got the drugs much earlier than we did. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. So, and you can look at different jurisdictions in the United States too. Um, Washington State, where our younger son lives, he's a medical doctor in, in Seattle, uh, 
locked down pretty aggressively, actually, not as aggressively as we did, but they did a lot of what we did. Mm. And they had relatively low incidence, uh, whereas Texas and Florida, controlled by Republicans, uh, didn't lock down hard, particularly Florida. Mm-hmm. And Florida, I mean, they, they're nuts anyway, but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, so you could look at those comparisons. Right. Right. Well, Peter, thanks um, so much for your time. Uh, COVID is something that in my world seems to appear to have died, died out, you know, if, if not quite literally, then at least. It, 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 um, it, psychologically and sociologically, yeah. it, we think it's gone. Uh, yes. I hope we're right. And I think it's mm-hmm. a good possibility we are. But we, the real test will be, Lucian, what happens in the northern winter. Right. There are just a hell of a lot more people crowded mm-hmm. a le- hell of a lot more closely together in the northern hemisphere than, than they are in the south. And they're, they're living in cold climate. So they're much more in buildings mm-hmm. and inside during winter. Mm-hmm. So I think if we get through the northern winter, and we don't have a nasty shock, I think we can feel pretty happy about it, that uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's calmed down a lot. It's calmed down a lot. Um, you know, people like Tony Fauci are saying, uh, you know, maybe we'll need an annual vaccination. Uh, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Honestly, we don't know. Right. Well, I suppose we can hope for the, hope for the best, hey? I, I think so. Hope for the best. And I think this time, I, I think we all think in a way that the way this was handled in Australia was probably too hard on young people. And, um, mm-hmm. and maybe we, I, th- I think we need to really look at what we did and, uh, and sort of consider uh, how best to handle these things. I get the, I get the feeling that you couldn't, you, you just might not be able to lock people down anymore in this in now, like you could in the past. I absolutely think that's true. People are totally impatient uh, with what happened here. I, th- I think we could be more educated to uh, not so much lock down, uh, but wear masks more, for instance. That would help a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't see why, for instance, I've just been on a tram mm-hmm. and the tram, the, the thing says you must wear a mask and pretty much nobody's wearing a mask. So mm-hmm. it's not that big an inconvenience to wear a mask on a tram. Mm-hmm. People feel like it impinges upon their... Per, yeah. Identity well, on the other hand, if you go to a bar or something and you're with a lot of young people, well, wearing a mask is a real drag. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to be on the dance floor wearing a mask, probably. So um, a mask ball. A mask. A mask ball. Yeah. A mask ball. It's ballet, ball. isn't it? A ball and mask. It's I'm a, sure that'd be a nightmare for so many people. But, <laughs> but you know, the the, um, the masks are actually a bit more elaborate. But could, you could have an N95 underneath. <laughs> No, I, I agree. The uh, the attraction of masks mm. is pretty low, but but you know, Asian societies, uh, people wear wear, wear masks all year round mm-hmm. in the street, mm-hmm. basically because the air quality is so toxic. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if you're in Beijing, uh, the air is at times almost unbreathable, mm-hmm. and people wear masks. I mean, that protect themselves. Mm-hmm. Maybe us Australians have just need to chill out a little bit and get over ourselves and chuck a mask on a little. More often than this. <laughs> you may say that, but I won't. <laughs> no, yeah, no, maybe I shouldn't have. Um, anyway, when I... When, you can get away with it. Yeah. yeah when I... Um, yes. Well, when I mentioned to a few few individuals that I was going to have this conversation, we're going to talk about COVID. And because there's also obviously plenty of other interesting things that 
you would be able to talk about and I'm sure we could talk about. But you know, I can talk for hours about all sorts of things. But yeah. uh, you know, basically, uh, in, in tennis, for instance, mm. I've just published a book on. This was my pre-retirement book. Oh, the, uh, really? Uh, oh, Empire, a, War, Tennis, and Me. Nothing Nobel, to do with that. Get a lot, Nobel Prize for tennis, tennis history. No, there's no Nobel Prize for tennis. Unfortunately. Well, anyway, or, 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 or for skateboarding. Or for skateboarding. Is that another favorite of yours, is it? <laughs> or mathematics. No, no, I'm not a skateboarder. Mathematics. Oh, anyway, Peter, um, again, thanks so much for having this conversation. It seems COVID seems, though it may seem to have faded in the background, just due to the impact it had on all of our lives. Well, you know, basically, you know, this... The institute, I mean, this is our business, basically, um, mm -hmm. infection and immunity. That's We are an infection immunity institute. So, I mean, we work on many infections, uh, not just COVID, and uh, obviously COVID was new. In fact, only one of us had ever really worked much on this class of viruses. Uh, she just happened to be uh, at the National Institute of Health in Bethesda when the first COVID hit, the uh, first coronavirus SARS hit. And they did a lot of research, but the rest of us hadn't worked on these viruses. I, I published one paper in a whole 500, one of 500 papers on a coronavirus. And uh, so um, it, it wasn't our obsession, obviously, but, uh, but and we'll, be, we'll be monitoring and watching this very, very, very closely for some time and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and trying to work out better ways forward scientifically. I'm uh, sure. There's a couple of experimental vaccines in progress. There's... Uh, strategies for making vaccines and getting them out much more quickly. And we've just got the biggest philanthropic donation that any Australian institution has ever received of $250 million from a wow. Canadian philanthropist to build a new drug discovery program for virus infections. That is quite a donation. So we'll be working on this for a long time and uh, or, or on related problems. That's our, that's our business. That's great to hear, and I'm sure we'll all ultimately be better off for it. So, we hope so. Anyway, Peter, thanks so much. Okay, Lucien, be well.